Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 22. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right. Well, if you are joining us for the first time today, uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And... Um, We've been working our way through a teaching series on the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis, uh, which will be on for the end of the year. And today we're going to be taking a look at the iconic story of Noah and the flood. And it isn't lost on me that this past week uh, there was a flood, obviously in Libya as well. And I want to be clear when I say this. While the two stories uh, in Genesis 6 and what happened in Libya are unrelated, uh, the commonality that they do share is the, is the force and the power of what a flood can do. Uh, I think right now there are over 11,000 that are missing, and some are saying that up to 20,000 will be dead when it is all said and done. So I want to just open up this time in prayer just for our friends in Libya and just for just healing and help, and then we'll... We'll dive into our text today. So join me in prayer. Lord, we uh, first of all weep and we grieve with our friends in Libya, those that have lost loved ones in particular. We pray for healthy grieving uh, during this very, very difficult time. We also pray for a lot of aid from the inside and from the outside uh, to help our friends there. We also just think about you know, the earthquake of Morocco and just all the, the moaning and the groaning that our earth is experiencing with storms and floods and earthquakes. And we long for the day when you will make a new heavens and a new earth that will not be susceptible to all of these disasters. And so we thank you that one day you are going to do that. In the meantime, help us to be uh, a source of light and help uh, to as many places as we can. In your name I pray, amen. 
Well, whether you've grown up in the church or you've never been to church in your life, and by the way, we do have a spiritual diversity uh, in our church of people that are unchurched, de-churched, and super, super churched. But regardless of where you're at in your spiritual journey, even if you are unfamiliar with the Bible, chances are you're at least familiar with the story of Noah, the ark, and the flood. Uh, In 2004 or 2007, uh, Steve Carell made a movie called Evan Almighty about Noah and the flood. In 2014, Darren Aronofsky uh, made the movie Noah featuring Russell Crowe. That same year, Ricky Gervais, uh, the, the director of The Office, one of my favorite shows, uh, he does this comedy sketch where he goes on to dismantle every single verse in Genesis 6 and does a whole comedy sketch on it. So what exactly is Noah's Ark really about? I mean, is it, is it a Hollywood film? Is it a comedy sketch? Is it a kid's story? And what I want to tell you today, and the case that I want to make to you today is this, that Genesis 6 and the story of Noah and the flood is one of the most unsettling stories that we have in all of the Bible, which is why the atheist scientist Richard Dawkins writes this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, genocidal, capriciously malevolent bully. And if you were to do a very superficial, cursory reading of Genesis 6, I can understand why. Richard Dawkins would say something like this. I mean, why in the world would God, a loving God, create a world and then proceed to decimate the whole world with a flood? I mean, is that really loving? Not really, is it? But as unsettling as this story is, I also want you to know that the flood was even more unsettling for God himself, which is why in verse 6 it writes this. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. When I, when I read verse 6, I don't, I don't read about a God who is delighted to send a flood on the earth. When I read verse 6, I see a God who is deeply troubled, disappointed, and an anguish that he sends a flood uh, to the world. Now, so this begs the question, then, why would a loving God send a flood then to this world? If it caused him that much pain, then why would he do it? And here's the big idea that I want to make today. As unsettling as the flood story is, what I want to make the case to you today is this. As unsettling as the story of the flood is, it would be even more unsettling if God didn't send a flood. So let me say it again. As unsettling as a flood story is, it would be even more unsettling if God didn't actually send a flood. So take a look with me at verse 9, 11, and 12, where it says this. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man 
blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And here we see a juxtaposition between Noah, a righteous, blameless man, and the rest of culture and society at large, which was uh, unrighteous, violent, and evil. And so again, we see this in the earlier verse in Genesis 6-5, where it says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now let's pause right there. If this verse irritates you or annoys you in a particular way, it's probably because we are all children of the Enlightenment and we are all children of the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, whether you know it or not. Rousseau believed that we are all born pure, completely innocent, and a clean slate. So there's no such thing as like original sin. So we're all born totally pure, but it's society that slowly begins to corrupt us. But inherently, we are all good people. So what I want to do is, first of all, tell you a story. Secondly, I want to show you a picture. And then thirdly, I want to do some analytics, okay, in response to Rousseau. So first, let me tell you a story. Follow with me, because this, this fell so flat in the first service, so follow <laughs> with me when I, when I see this story, okay? So there was an eight-year-old boy named Jimmy. Jimmy stole a pencil from his classmate. Teacher saw it. Jimmy, you can't do that. So for accountability, she writes a letter to Jimmy's parents saying that Jimmy stole a pencil from one of his classmates. And so Jimmy comes home and he gives the letter to his dad. And his dad reads it and he's like furious. He's like, this is not the kind of boy that I want to raise. Like, how could you steal a pencil? Like stealing, it's not right Stealing is wrong. Besides, if you really needed a pencil, didn't you know that I could take 10 from the office? Here it, it fell flat again. Here is a dad. <laughs> it's a dad joke, apparently. Here is a dad that is criticizing his son for stealing something when he himself uh, was willing to do it. Okay, so that's a story about. Some, it's something, right? At least it's something about the human condition, right? Let me show you a picture. Uh, this is a picture of a, uh, a pipe on a, a beach going out deep into the shore with a sign that says, do not climb, play on, and around the pipe. And what we see is like 20 or 30, and, and notice just how it's all boys. <laughs> There's a girl in a pink bathing suit, of course, not on the pipe, all boys. Uh, that are actually climbing on playing and, uh, you know, around the pipe. It's funny, right? But this, this little snippet is, again, a picture. Not a whole picture, but a, a picture of what the human condition is like. We, we do things that we're not supposed to do. And sometimes it feels really good. Let's do analytics. Um, take a look at the comment section of any tweet, any tweet. Take a look at the comment section of 
any social media post, anyone, pick a random one, take a look at the comment section of any news article, and there you will empirically see the condition of man. You will see vitriol, you will see divisiveness, you will see maliciousness, you will see hatred, you will see xenophobia. Any tweet, any post, anything. And by the way, this is not Adolf Hitler writing these comments. This is your coworkers. This is your family members. These are your friends. This might even be us that are writing these comments on um, the various posts that we have. C.S. Lewis, in his seminal book, Mere Christianity, he writes this. These, then, are the two points. Not sure if we have it. Maybe not. There we go. These, then, are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. We call this a moral compass. Uh, Jiminy Cricket will call it your conscience. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. Theologically, we will call this sin. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. So what I want to do is uh, show you this moral scale, okay, in the next slide. And in this slide, we have a scale of 1 to 10. And on the bottom, we have Kim Jong-un, who most of us would agree is one of the, if not the most, evil person, terrible person that we have in the world. And at the top, of course, we all think of, when we think about someone with moral virtue, we think about someone like Mother Teresa. Now, this is just a hunch, but I'm assuming most of us would not say that we are a one. On the other hand, I think most of us would say, would not say that we're a 10 either, right? The Rousselian part of us would say that we're somewhere like a six, seven, or eight. We are, uh, to put it another way, we're just simply a good person. I'm not perfect, but I'm not Kim Jong-un. I'm somewhere like middle to upper middle, right? Now, here's what's interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, what's interesting is... Um, What's interesting is I did my math wrong last service, but let's, let's do some moral analytics for a moment. Let's say you send, let's say you send uh, once a day for a year. First service, I said it was 3,650 times. <laughs> Th- 365 times, okay? You just do one wrong thing a day, like, you know, you gossip or like, you know, bad thought or, you know, you know, whatever, right? You do just one thing, which is pretty generous, I think. You do one wrong thing a day, um, someone cuts you off on the sidewalk and you get upset or something. So that'd be 365 uh, sins a year. Now, let's imagine you live a full life, 80 years, I think, if I'm doing my math, something like 29,200, something like that. Something like that, right? So by the end of your life, you committed almost like 30,000 uh, 30, sins. Now here's, 30,000 is not nothing. Right? 30,000 is a good amount. Now, whether you're religious or not, all of us tend to kind of believe there's something in the afterlife, right? Which is why we say things like, oh, they're in a better place, or I know that they're looking down on me. Even if you're a secular materialist, interestingly enough, this kind of stuff leaks out of you, right? Even though you don't believe in it. 
So that, that's a whole other thing, right? Why do we say those kinds of things? So if there's a better place, there's probably a worse place too. Now, my question to us is, how do you know you're going to that better place with 30,000 sins? Like, what's the bar? Is it like 15,000 and you're in? 20,000 and you're in? Like, who sets the bar? Like, 30,000 is not nothing. So how do you know you're getting in or how do you know you're getting out? And this is where all of us as a culture, we kind of, our tongues turn into pretzels. We don't really, we don't really know, right? Like, and this is where moral relatives and stuff like that happens, but like we really get confused. Now, here's the bad news of Christianity, and I'll follow it up with even the greater news of Christianity. The bad news of Christianity is that if you get a 10, if you live like a virtuous life like Mother Teresa, that's still not good enough. Because guess what? In Christianity, the scale isn't 1 to 10. It's actually 1 to 100. So even 10s are actually not good enough. So that's the bad news. The greater news of Christianity, though, is that your salvation is not contingent on your moral performance. Your, your salvation, your ark, is not contingent on your moral performance, but on Jesus' moral performance for us, who actually lived the life of a hundred And when we have faith in him and we hitch our wagon to him, it is based on his works, his performance, that we attain salvation. He's our ark. It's not contingent on our salvation and the things that that we do. And what that means then in Christianity then is that oftentimes the way that we think about the world is like good guys and bad guys. But in Christianity, there are no good guys and bad guys. We're all the bad guys, right? So the problem with the world is in that political party that politician, the problem of the world isn't woke people versus anti-woke people. The problem with the world isn't that influencer or that podcaster like brainwashing people. The problem with the world isn't the rich or the poor. Uh, the problem with the world, in many ways, to quote my, my daughter's newest theologian, musician, friend Taylor Swift, the problem with the world is me. I'm the problem, it's me. It's not those people, it's, it's us. And unless you can say, it's me, I'm the problem, it's me. Unless you can say that, you will never see a need for God. You will never see a need for God. Unless you have that much, unless you have some semblance of self-awareness, about your broken state, you will never see a need uh, for God in your life because you cannot understand the good news of Christianity unless you first understand the bad news of Christianity first. This is what Tim Keller writes. He says, all human beings are in their natural condition in a state of warfare against God. We're all hostile to God. We're all fighting against God, and that's the way it is. The proof of that, the only time God ever became vulnerable to us, the only time God ever became weak, the only time God ever became touchable, the only time we killed him. And that gives you an idea of what our state, our inner state is like, which is why we read in verse 13. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. 
I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And notice here that God doesn't send a flood to the earth because the earth is filled with goodness, truth, and beauty. No, God sends a flood to the earth because it is filled with evil and violence. It would be unjust if God sent a flood if the earth was filled with good only. But would it be unjust if God sent a flood to the world if it was filled with violence and evil? Oftentimes people ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering? Well, what we see in Genesis 6 is that God does not allow evil and suffering. He may for a time But in the end, there is a final retributive justice uh, that takes place. So as unsettling as the flood is, as unsettling as the wrath of God is, as unsettling as doctrines, hard doctrines like hell are, it would be far more unsettling if there was no flood, if there was no wrath, if there was no final retributive justice. In secularism, sometimes the bad guys win. In Christianity, that will never happen because there is a final retributive justice. Imagine for a moment you went to heaven, you entered the pearly gates, and there you saw in heaven Kim Jong-un chilling on a hammock drinking a mojito. How would you feel? Wouldn't you feel like, That's not, there's something wrong with this picture. Where are the consequences? Where's the justice for what this person has done? And you would be right in saying that. And Genesis 6 is all about the idea that justice, there is justice. And God cares about about all the evil and suffering that is taking place in this world. And there will be retributive justice. Miroslav Volf, a Yale philosopher, writes this. If God... We're not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. In a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. Wrath, the judgment of God, hard doctrines like hell are unsettling, but it would be even more unsettling if these are the pages of scripture that were absent and missing from the Bible. The problem is we all want justice meted out. We all want justice handed out. The problem is we don't want justice handed out to us. But what we see in the gospel is that Jesus Christ is the one who took the justice of God and the judgment of God and the wrath of God in our place because all of us fall short of the glory of God. Okay. Uh, this past June, um, I think... By, by now, all of us know that there were five people that paid $250,000 to go on a voyage uh, to see the uh, Titanic wreckage uh, in the Atlantic uh, via like this deep sea submersible. And, and what took place in June sparked a lot of conversations, right? Like, would you ever go on like this expedition to go see the Titanic? 
And let's say you did have this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to actually see the Titanic, and it was for free. But the one caveat is that on the windshield, there is like this millimeter, millimeter crack that is on the windshield. Would you go on that voyage? And I'm assuming most of us would say, heck no. But what if the other person said, but it's like 99.9999% perfect. Like, you still don't want to go? I think most of us would say, heck no. And the reason for that is only perfect windshields go in the water, not imperfect windshields. And similarly, when it comes to heaven, it is not almost perfect people or good people that get to go to a place like heaven in front of a holy God but it is only perfect uh, people that get to go there. Now, the pushback, of course, is, well, I'm not a Adolf Hitler. I'm assuming that not everyone during Noah's time was Adolf Hitler. So it doesn't really feel like the punishment is commensurate with like, our actions. It seems a little bit like a little overboard, in my opinion. And that's a great question. So imagine for a moment you actually punch someone in the face. Okay, Chances are... Nothing is really going to happen if you do something like that. But now imagine for a moment, you don't just punch some random person in the face, but you punch the president of the United States in the face. You know what's going to happen? There's going to be like five Secret Service guys jump on you in seconds. And the punishment is going to be far more severe than had you uh, punched someone else. Now, why is that the case? The actions are the same. Why is the punishment different? And the reason why the punishment is different is because of who you did it to. The greater the person, the greater the punishment. Okay. So when we think about the flood, it is not, it, the flood not only displays how unawesome we are, but the flood is actually a demonstration of how awesome God is uh, as well. But judgment and wrath and the flood is not how the story of Noah ends, nor is it the way that the Bible ends as well. So what we see in verse 17 is this. God writes, I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. What we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is God creating the world But five chapters later, four chapters later in Genesis 6, we see God decreating the world via a flood. And theologically, when you study the the motif of water and flood in the Bible, like the Egyptians getting flooded by the Red Sea, when you study the theme of water and flood in the Bible, it is symbolic theologically of judgment and wrath. What's also interesting is that when you take a look at Revelation 21 that John writes, he talks about heaven. And one of the things that John writes about heaven is that in heaven there is no sea. Now that stinks because I I love the beach, I love surfing. Like heaven would not be heaven if there were no beaches. But I don't think that John is talking about literal beaches. When John says that there is no sea in heaven, he's talking about the fact that there is actually no judgment in heaven. There is no wrath. And the reason why there is no wrath for us 
It's because Jesus took the wrath of God in our place. In Luke 12, 50, Jesus writes this, or Luke writes this, or quoting Jesus, but I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Now, what's interesting is that in Luke 3, Jesus was already baptized by John the Baptist. So why is he talking about another baptism that he has to undergo? The reason why he's talking about another baptism is because he's talking about a baptism of the flood of judgment of God, an ocean, a wave upon wave that we deserve that he would take and soak up like a sponge in our place. Oftentimes people ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever heard that? Why do bad things happen to good people? The truth of the matter is that's only happened one time in history. And that was 2,000 years ago on a cross when the only good person that ever lived, the only perfect person that ever lived was murdered on a cross gladly in our place so that we would not be blameworthy, but that we would be blameless. Some years ago, my uh, wife's boss was um, really upset because he was working on this big project and his boss swept in, took all the credit for it. And I don't know if this hits a nerve with any of you, but you can imagine how livid he was because he did all the work and his boss swept it into credit. But as consolation, he was like, but at least I got like a lot of points for all the travel. Well, it turns out his boss later like somehow took all the points even from him and took it for himself. So he's like a Chicago bull, like steaming with anger. But I want you to imagine for a moment where someone doesn't come into your life and they don't take the credit that you deserve but they actually come and give you credit for something that you don't deserve. But not only do they give you credit for something that you didn't deserve, they actually love you so much they take the blame that you deserve for the work that you did. They give you credit and they take your blame. And that is what Jesus has done for us. He gives us his life. He gives you credit. He takes your blame in your place. And this is why in verse 9 it says that Noah was a righteous and blameless man. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah is a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. If you keep reading Genesis, you will quickly realize that Noah is not a blameless man. He had a very difficult relationship with alcohol. He was not a perfect man. He was a very broken man. But the reason why the author says that he was righteous and blameless is because of who he was in Jesus. And because of that, he was righteous and blameless um, in God's sight. And the goal for all of us is to continually step into that reality of righteousness and blamelessness, to continue to grow in our faith. You know what it means to be blameless? It means to be like without error, without blame, right? And so what does it look like to continually step into that reality? I think one of the ways that it looks like is this. Whenever, I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but whenever sometimes like some people do stuff they shouldn't do, sometimes we say things like, yeah, that's, that's not surprising with that person. You know what I'm talking about? 
You know what it means to be without blame? When no one can say that about us. We live in such a way where no one can say those things about us because we walk with so much character and we walk with so much, with so much integrity. And you know one way of stepping into that kind of life looks like to, to live a blameless life? The key, ironically, if you really want to live a blameless life, is to stop blaming other people. The inverse of blaming others is actually accountability for our actions. Brene Brown was um, telling a story about how she was in her kitchen, and she was, she was a light pink sweater, bright white pants, drinking a full cup of coffee. And as she's about to take a drink, she drops the cup of coffee. It's, it breaks into like a gajillion pieces, and the coffee splashes all over her white jeans and her light pink sweater. And the first words out of her mouth, damn you, Steve. You know who Steve is? Her husband. <laughs> and the previous night, Stephen, Stephen wanted to go play water polo. And Brene says to Steve, just make sure you're home by 10 p.m. because you know I can't go to bed unless I know that you're back home. Problem was, Steve came home at 10.30, causing her to lose 30 more minutes of sleep, causing her to be a little bit more groggy in the morning. Ergo, a second cup of coffee, which she ordinarily would not have drunk, and therefore, the real person to blame for this accident is not herself, it is Steve. Do you see how quickly, quickly we calculate that in our heads? The inverse, though, of blaming others is accountability. And a person that truly understands the gospel and is liberated by the fact that Jesus took my blame, you know what a person that really understands the gospel says? It's me. It's not you. You're right, it's me. With their spouse, it's not you. I messed up. You're right. With their friends and roommates, it's not them. Yeah, I'm the problem. It's me. Without this, without feeling, you know, victimized or, or self-pitying, owning up to the life that we are called to live, holding ourselves uh, accountable for the life that we live. A person that truly understands the gospel accepts criticism and they say, you're right, and you actually don't even know the half of it. I'm even worse than that, but I'm also far more loved than I think too. And that's why I follow Jesus, and that's why I want to live a righteous, blameless life. What are some areas of your life right now where you're blame-shifting other people for what's going on in your life? What are some areas of your life where if people were to find, about, find out about it, they would say, yeah, not that surprising that that person had... What, what's that thing where you have to flip the script and change the narrative on so that you step into a life that is righteous and blameless? What are those things? Marinate on the gospel and what he has done for you. And remember uh, that it's not our moral performance at the end of the day, but it is. Let's pray.
Lord, I am reminded of uh, the words of John Wooden, the legendary basketball coach who once said that you are not a failure until you start to blame others. Help us to be the kind of people that hold ourselves accountable, that actually want to see and have a better sense of self-awareness about ourselves because unless we have some, some clarity on who we are, unless we see ourselves clearly, we will never see, we will never see a need for you. And at the same time, help us not to be too discouraged um, by our weaknesses and the struggles that we have. Help us always remember Jesus who lived the life that we should have lived and took the wrath and the blame of God in our place because he actually loved us and absorbed the floodwaters of judgment in our place. In your name I pray, amen.